Shumai, welcome back to the HR podcast. For those of you wondering what Shumai means, it's basically a Welsh greeting. It's a Welsh informal greeting. Shumai, hello, what's happening? What's going down, dude? Doesn't mean what's going down, dude, but you get the drift. So Shumai, S-H-W-M-A-E, random spelling. Uh, Shumai, welcome back to the HR podcast. This audio will improve. Um, the podcast was recorded on a different microphone. It was still recorded in the comfort of my own home, though. It's just that microphone is no longer available because I can't find the bloody thing. Anyway, it will improve in case you think this is below standard. It is below studio standard, but I can't get in a studio now, can I? But it should be completely fine to listen to. Um, sponsoring this podcast, enabling this podcast today, and enabling all of these podcasts since right back very early on when I first started, almost 100 podcasts ago, are Westway Nissan. Westway Nissan... Yes, they support me and they support the military community. And right now, but right now I should say, in the midst of this COVID-19 situation, they are also supporting key workers. They are losing money to support key workers. They are doing things off their own back without charging and they are operating a skeleton man to keep the dealerships open, not to sell cars, but to provide key work to key workers' vehicles who need it. They've also got a car loan scheme going on where key workers have got transport issues. They will endeavour and are endeavouring and are providing loan cars for free to key workers who need them urgently. That is what kind of an organisation Westwood is on During normal times, they like to sell a new and used vehicles, private and commercial type vehicles. Um, you can get up to a 20% discount off a purchase with Westway if you're a serving person or if you are a non-serving person because you've left. So ex-military or serving military, you can get up to 20% off when you buy with Westway Nissan. As I said, they've got commercial and private type vehicles. They've got a Nissan Leaf, electric car. They've got 4x4s like the uh, beautiful uh, pickup Navara. They've got um, van type vehicles. They've got everything. They can literally Meet all your needs, and you can get up to 20% off. So, if you're looking for a new vehicle, it sounds like the A-Team start then, doesn't it? I'm trying to remember the A-Team start to be bear any relevance to people who don't know what I'm on about. Anyway, if you're looking for a new, if you're looking for a new vehicle, or a used vehicle, get along to Westway Nissan. There's certain models of Nissan you can only get with Westway, because they've got exclusive deals with Nissan. So you can only get certain models of Nissan with Westway Nissan. They've got dealerships all over the UK, including in the home of the British Army. You can find them on social media, Westway Nissan. And that's where is the best place to find out what they're doing to support the key workers at this moment in time. It's also the best place to keep up to date with uh, any offers and deals that they may have in the future. They've always got offers and deals on. Um, in the future, when, the, uh, the, when they're able to get back to work and get back into the business of selling people vehicles. Um, their website as well is Westway waynissan.co.uk thank you also thank you to rugby heroes another organization who has a member who is supporting the nhs supporting key workers mike valance big shout to mike who's one of the founding members of rugby heroes he has spent a week down with uh team rubicon uk at their head their headquarters in chilmark a help in them uh, provide assistance to the NHS, to HM forces across the UK and to communities, towns, cities, villages, individual people, the elderly, the vulnerable, helping them get on top of things, get through this crisis. So big shout to Mike Valance. And he, he spent a week down there, but that is not where his work has stopped. He's still providing as much assistance to them as he can. And, uh, and 
I know I'm hugely grateful, and uh, Team Rukon UK hugely grateful too. So, like I said, Mike is part of Rugby for Heroes, a not-for-profit organisation who raise money for military charities. They do this because the, or, well, I should say the organisation organization was formed um, in the wake of Private Joe, the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was a paratrooper and sadly killed in Afghanistan in 2009. Now, Rugby for Heroes is a small organisation. It's not huge. There aren't a huge amount of people behind it, but Nevertheless, they have managed to raise, since they formed, over £100,000 for military charities. And I have friends who have been beneficiaries of that money that has been raised by Rugby for Heroes. And I myself have also been a beneficiary in the past from Rugby for Heroes. I'm hugely grateful for what they do and what they keep doing. Um, you can find out more about Rugby for Heroes at, uh, at Rugby number four Heroes on social media. Why would you want to do that, you may ask? Well, because they organise events to raise money for military charities. That's what they do. They had a bunch of events lined up this year. Obviously, things haven't been postponed to a date, to dates yet to be identified. Um, but they've got two uh, fundraising supper clubs lined up. One's going to take place in London. One's going to take place in Warwickshire. These supper clubs are fantastic events. Really cool people to go. Really fun time raising money for military charities. And it's awesome networking as well, to be perfectly honest. I really enjoy it. And also they had a, or have, a rugby, uh, a beer and gin festival planned. I say rugby because there's going to be rugby involved. There's a beer and gin festival planned as well with a, a veterans military side playing against the civvy side as well. And that's going to take place in Leamington Spa at Old Lemontonians RFC. You need to keep an eye on the Rugby Hero social media to find out when these events are going to take place. You need to keep an eye on their website as well, or one or the other. Either way, get involved with them. The website is rugbyforheroes.org. That's rugbyforheroes.org. And just to remind you of the social media, it's at rugby4heroes. Just do the social media. It's the best bet. Easy peasy. Easy peasy Japanesey. I don't know if I can say that anymore. Uh... Well, I said it. Anyway, that's it. On to the podcast. My guest today is Adnan Sawa. Adnan is a former Royal Engineer. He served with their Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit. And during his service, he completed multiple tours, including the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Adnan and I were on the, on the ground at the same time, although we didn't know each other then. We weren't going to meet each other until... 15, 16 years later. It was Ben Griffin, uh, ex Tupara, ex, uh, ex SAS, who actually introduced me to Adnan, um, who is a fascinating guy, right? Adnan, upon leaving the military, he he's basically become a very successful uh, documentary maker for Channel 4, ITV, and the BBC. He's also a writer, and he previously edited at The Economist. This all sounds like, yeah, just your bog standard, oh, did really well when he got out, got a really good career doing stuff. That is not how it happened. Ups and downs. Um, it's a fascinating story. Adnan has also uh, also joined the military. He was uh, he was a Muslim when he joined uh, at the time of joining, and um, that in itself makes for an interesting listen. I had a really cool conversation with Adnan. I got a lot of time for him. Very proud to call him a friend, and it, his stuff is. Is inspirational and and some of it is fucking hilarious. So without further ado, my name is Hugh Kier. This is the HR podcast, and my guest is Adnan Sawa. Enjoy.
sorry, mate, go on. You're working on a project to do with the Iraq war and you're leaving all the operational stuff out. Yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, basically, I wrote a diary in the Iraq war. And uh, when I got there, so I was, I was in the engineers and, uh, and I'm in Kuwait. And my sergeant major says to me, you speak Arabic, don't you? And I was like, no. He said, why not? I said, because I'm from Burnley, mate. And he just said, well, you, like, and he just completely assumed it. And he said, well, you better get learning. I was like, what do you mean, better get learning? And he said, get learning, because I've told the US Marines that you can speak Arabic and you're going to translate for them. So we'll be one of the first across the border. And I don't know if you remember at the time, um, everybody wanted to be first across the border or whatever, you know, like it was obvious, like, you know, if you were conventional groups, you probably weren't first across the border. You, but you, you're talking about the Iraq war, now, 2003, you, right? Iraq war, 2003, Telic one. Yeah. Or, or just Telic if, you know, people get a bit. Um, anyway, so Telic crossing the border, Sergeant Major says to me in, in Kuwait, you speak Arabic, don't you? And I was like, no. And, and I, he said, learn. I said, so, all right. Okay. So I started learning a little bit and then I met the U S Marines and I was fascinated by these people because like I say, I grew up in Burnley, no, no Americans there, uh, went to college, no Americans there, uh, you know, screwed up my education, didn't meet any Americans. First time I really meet any Americans is in Kuwait with the US Marines. Before that, all that's happened is I've grown up in the 80s and watched Rocky and Rambo. And in, in basic training, one of the corporals put bloody full metal jacket on. So that, that's all I knew about the Americans. And then suddenly they're there and it's real and we're going to cross the border with them. So I learned a bit of Arabic, but equally, the U.S. Marines had lots and lots of kit, and they had these notebooks. Uh, they weren't A5; they were slightly, they were slightly, they were a different, an odd shape. Anyway, they're from Office Depot. These green notebooks—they were basically their orders books or something—and and they gave me one. And I thought, wow! And I just started writing a diary in it. And my sergeant major used to say to me, "He goes, what are you, what are you bloody writing this diary for?" You know, and I was like, "Because well, it's, it's interesting. It's the war." And that was 2003. And then we get this lockdown. And then I'm looking through an old shoebox that I've got up here in Manchester. And I photocopied the whole diary, mate. And I was just like, oh, God. And I started reading it. And I was like, I've got everything from, from, from when we land in Kuwait. Uh, I, I lo unfortunately lost a couple of mates in, in that war. Like within two weeks of us crossing the border, we, we lose these two lads. And one of, one of them was, was pivotal to, to me developing really as a human being and that that's the thing that i got from the war okay you know i uh i served in the iraq war a couple of times i was a royal engineer started off life in ink corps became a pti did my ml course uh did some parachuting did some skiing you know enjoyed it you know uh, you know pti in the gym uh, easy easy street uh, uh served in cyprus Qatar, kuwait you know l little jobs like that but largely the thing that i got from the military was this amazing amount of personal development and that i think i think that 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 part of it isn't really i don't know it isn't it it, it it was weird for me because when i reflected on it later on right i mean you're white okay and you grew up in this country and you get to grow up in this country as a white person okay i grew up in this country as a brown person and you know yeah i got a little bit of crap when i was growing up and we all had a fight okay forget that i'm not this is not you know about race cards or anything um, but then when I joined the army, what I meet there is, and I got way more racism in Burnley than I ever did in the army. Okay. That's just the truth. Uh, so I joined the army and what I get there is this unadulterated honesty, right? I get these people who have joined the army for the same reasons I've joined. You know, they're not, we weren't philosophers, mate. You know, if we were joining in the, in, in the ranks, you know, we were just, 
we were escaping from something. We were trying to trying to get somewhere. And for me, as the as the son of immigrants, and my dad runs a corner shop in Burnley, and I screwed up my education. I was looking at it, I was thinking like, you know, I'm not going to be able to do anything. So I I met uh, I met uh, the military at, at college, and they were recruiting for officers. And this guy tells me that he gets to jump out of planes and he gets paid for it and he gets to go around to different countries. And I was just like, I'm going to do what you're doing. And I just thought it was amazing that this guy had this life. So I just, I just pursued it. And it, it, you know, and then I make me these guys and this, this one guy in particular, again, like I say, I won't mention his name, but this one guy in particular, um, I'm uh, in this four, four man bedroom in Wimbish where the EOD teams are based. Well, one of the, the Royal Engineers EOD team. And, uh, and just before the Iraq War 2003, he walks in the room and he's, he's smashed. And he just says to me, why are you not out with the rest of us? You know, like partying, drinking and all this kind of stuff. And I said, look, I'm a, I'm a Muslim. And he was just like, oh, OK. Um, do you believe in all that? And I was like, of course I do. But up until that point, I'd, I'd grown up on a street with uh you know muslim kids and you know we had the identity we had to protect that identity because you know we were getting our heads kicked in every now and then so but then but then now i'm hundreds of miles away from burnley 100 miles away from my home my family the mosque and everything and this kid is just asking me a simple question and i and i get to that's the weird thing about the army you know it's got all these rules and stuff but i felt so free you know i could i could question myself i could do whatever I wanted to do and I could be myself. And that was the thing that this guy dragged out of me. Last time I see him alive, unfortunately, is we're painting Land Rovers yellow in the desert in, in Kuwait because we went out with green Land Rovers. And then we then we then we put those black arrow markers on there so the American Chev the Chevron. Yeah, yeah. But the other the other the other weird thing was um the other weird thing was people were saying, oh no no dude what you gotta do is you've got to put a union jack on the on the on the roof so the Americans know it and by the time we'd finished with our camouflage Land Rovers, we had uni jacks everywhere. And so it's like, look, you know. Um, so we're painting these Land Rovers yellow. And then I take a couple of pictures of him, which is, his family have now got. Uh, and, and then we cross the border. And then, unfortunately, he, him and another lad, uh, well, uh, 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 an EOD team of four people, soft-skinned Land Rovers, uh, in an ambush in Basra. And the, the, uh, he's in the lead vehicle with this other lad, and they get hit. And the, the rear vehicle, these guys managed to escape. And that, that moment happens. Now, up until that point, again, this is the other thing I'm doing with the Iraq War diary is I'm not pretending I was smart at that time. You know, I was a 20-something kid who wanted an adventure and wanted to escape his, his life. Uh, and we can all reflect later on and say, you know, oh, yeah, this happened, that happened. Forget that. You've just got to be honest. And at that time, that guy was... A friend of mine, but he wasn't my best mate, but he had said this thing to me. And then, you know, unfortunately, the next time I see him in any kind of physical sense, he's been carried on the shoulders of my friends onto a plane in Kuwait. And and because this, this thing happens, I start chatting to my mates out there and I'm and I'm a bit more honest with them and a bit more open. And I say, look, guys, you know, when I when I go back, I'm going to. I'm gonna I'm gonna meet my first girlfriend, you know, or, or whatever. Dude, I'm like 25 by this point, right? And it, you know, if you're if you're from Burnley, you know, people are, people were knocking out kids when they were 16, 17, you know. So it was it was just like it was just like 
this, 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 I thought I was really, really late in all this. All this. Um, so then, you know, I, I attached so much significance to his words that night when he was drunk in my room, in the four-man room back in South Walden, to this moment that, that happens in the Iraq war, that I just go and, and change my life. And, and, I, and I meet my first, first missus when I get back from the Iraq war. And my life, literally, I feel like my life has turned right angles and I'm living differently and I'm living fully. And it was all because of this, this kid who comes in and questions the way I'm living my life, not, not being, you know, not, not being politically correct and not, not, not being politically correct. You know, he weren't being a racist or anything. He was just being inquisitive. And he was just, and the other thing he was saying to me was, why aren't you with us? You know, like we're a bunch of squaddies. We're about to go out to a war and we're all out there partying because, you know, in, in about a week, we're getting on a plane to go somewhere where we not, might not come back from. And he didn't. And he's saying to me, why are you not with us? You know, why are you not out there with us as, as part of our unit and formed with us? And I couldn't understand that at the time. I, I just thought it's just a bunch of white lads going out drinking. You know, that's why I left it to that. And I used to, mate, in, in, the, in, the, in the barracks, I used to sit there on my own at night and just read like books or whatever. I go into a lot of reading later on, but I just I just didn't feel like I was part of them. And I, and I tried to. I, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be that guy. But I didn't. I didn't like I say I didn't grow up like them. So it was very difficult. But then, but then when it when honestly when when I started like uh, living properly as I will term it, I, I I I felt like I'd been in a shower, mate. You know, I felt like I'd just been washed, and I and I I could do whatever I wanted to do, and. Uh, and then, you know, I leave the army with this ridiculous confidence and this, um, you know, like the last thing I did in the army was help build a prison in Basra, on Basra Air Station, to house insurgents. Uh, and then I'm, then I'm in Civvy Street and, and I feel, and I know, not feel, I know I can do anything. So anyway, long, long story short, my, my point is... Uh, there was something that made me join the army and I'm glad it happened because I won't be here right now. You know, I, 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 and I'm not, I'm not being flippant. I'm not using stereotypes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not self-hating. There's none of that going on. I know for a fact that without the education that I give myself afterwards and, and, and the, the, the period of personal development that the army gave me, I'd be a taxi driver right now, mate. And I'd be, angry at myself and I'd be upset uh, or, or maybe I wouldn't even know because I hadn't seen the other life and that's the other thing about um, life isn't it? you go, go you go through certain doors don't you and then you can't come back through them you've seen too much you know and anyway sorry it's not I mean mate mega uh, fucking hell there's, a, there's, a, there's about 50 different things in there you just talked about that could be all their own individual podcast I think you're great half mega half mega you know, uh, and listen, rest in peace. God bless your, your mate who, uh, I'm not, yeah. I'm not religious. I don't know why I say God bless. It's one of the things to say, but you know what I mean? I rest in peace to him. Um, the thing is, there, Adnan, is that, uh, is a, is a bunch of things that, that are fed into where you are now. And you, you know, arguably some might say, I say it's not arguably, you're a successful individual in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. Mm. Um, in, in personally and professionally, you know, and you've taken a route that probably, uh, never mind the military, you're now in a place where you never would have thought, it, let alone the military, you never even thought you would have got to now when you, before you joined up. But 
<clears throat> the thing is with with serving in the military in whatever unit, I think, mm. um, is that you become, especially now, you become exposed to things that are quite difficult to come by now. And, that, and one of those things is one of those things is the the challenging of your beliefs or your culture or just the way you do things. And that doesn't matter whether you're whether you're white, brown, any other colour. It doesn't matter. But the point the point the fact is, and especially with the army, and especially with frontline units, is that you mentioned, you know, going out and bonding and, and all of that, the camaraderie. There's no barriers, right? So whereas in Sibby Street, um, as a as a Muslim or as a or as some other belief, not extreme, but some other, you know, some other belief that could be extreme or, or it cannot, like, you know, you got like lifestyle stuff, like veganism, like uh, I don't know, he, uh, be, being gay. You know, or yeah. LGBTQ and all that. I'm not. This is not just slagging off. Just giving examples of extremist views. Quite a lot of time, or a lot of the time now, uh, people because people are are ex, ex, uh, the worst advocates of those areas that they wish to represent in a positive way because they completely close themselves off to any other point of view, and any other point of view is wrong. When in actual fact, <laughs> the most important thing we have. As a human race, as as humans, that we are able to do is communicate. Okay, and the most and the only reason we learn things is by communicating with people who have a different experience or a different and therefore different knowledge than us. And so, when you go into the military, like you were saying, you grew up there. I'm, I'm assuming I, I know what Burnley's like. I've never been. I think I've ever been to Burnley. But I have mates who grew up there. White white mates who grew up there. Um, you know, I've, I've been to places like Bolton, Birmingham, mm. places like that. You grow up, it's like me growing up in Wales, man. You know, I grew up in my village in Wales. That is its own little culture. Mm. Completely different to anything else in the UK. When I stepped outside of that, it's like, whoa, people do different things differently. When you got the, when you were growing up, you didn't have that challenge because you're in your own bubble. You're in your own bubble of people, and that is great. And it's very unlikely you're going to get challenged because people in the public they don't like to do it. They don't like to cause a drama. They don't like to challenge people's beliefs. In case that person gets um, upset or annoyed, whereas the beauty of the conversation you and I are having now, because you're in the military and because I was in the military, we know straight away the gloves are off and we can have a conversation. And even if I was insulting to you now, you know, it, you know, it's banter. But mm. even so, even in a light-hearted manner or the serious conversation you had with your your mate in in the four-man room that night, you get something from that. And you know, the positive for you was you 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 moved on and you changed direction in life. But that doesn't have to always be the positive. The positive can be you stay believing what you believe in. You stay being that the uh, the practicing Muslim or the the you know the vegan or the person fighting for the LGBTQ rights. But at the same time, you've got a different perspective and you can understand the other side. And so you're more enlightened. And mm. I deliberately use that word. And it it doesn't mean you. It doesn't mean that oh you're part you you're you're like a traitor of the belief you believe in. It just means you're you're more exposed. It's like you un and you understand yourself more. You understand what you believe in more, and you're able to move forward with it and and in a better, more positive kind of way. It's it's hugely important. The military is one of the last places now where you can really have those conversations. Gloves off, anything goes. The problem comes, and I've 
it's interesting. It brought the racism side of things. The problem comes within the military and where and the military and the public worlds collide. It's that well, you saw the recent case last year. Last year with um, two two uh, pr- one private from three para and a clerk who was attached to three para. Two black lads. Do you remember that racism racism yeah. case? Last year, it was, it was it was front page front page news, okay. and they they uh, they accused uh, Power Edge of institutionalized racism, which mm. I was I was three Power Power Edge, and I can actually say it's not the case. You know, um, there are always isolated pockets of mm. of uh, di- discrimination, which in some cases could be racism, could be sexism, different things, but not institutional racism. And actually, one of the soldiers served under me as part of as part of the unit, and I as part of my platoon at one point. And it got me thinking about the whole thing where what happened with that, I think, in some some aspects of it, is that the military got judged on civilian standards. Um, so and I'll give an example of that. I've mentioned it before. I'll give an example of that. Uh, you could look back on things I said and you could look back on things that um, people of non-white skin I said to me in the past, to my friends in the past, you could look at them and see them on paper. And, and I could say, such as I said this to me. And on paper, it is absolutely the most racist thing you can ever say from, from a black person to me as a white person. Still racist. You know the score, right? And vice versa. Absolutely. Things I said to them are completely, if you take it on face value on paper, completely racist. But what that stuff does is it takes away the context. It takes away the culture within it's being said. So my example I've said before, there was a there's a I was in training with him. It's a black lad. He's still I think he's still serving now. He's a VG and he's been in for years, right? And uh even it was like from week two, week three in depot. And his greeting to me, straight off banter, no holes barred, anything goes, because you don't mean it, it's banter. You you just pick something to slag someone off just because why not? Because that's what yeah. you do, right? My greeting to him was uh I'm not gonna say the word, but uh good morning, you bastard yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah i won't say it because if i say it flipping people just get a cut you know you know the score but i sent him and he replied to me morning you welsh can every morning now imagine you take what i was saying to him and just take that sense he could turn around now and absolutely i'd be in court for racism yeah but it's not just the context you know mm-hmm. and it, the military represents to me one of the last bastions where you anything goes it is completely it's it just like water off a duck's back until someone wants to take advantage of the system. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think there is, un, unfortunately, and this, the, Alexia, I, I think this, 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 we're at two different places right now. You know, there's a. Let me just, let me, a, just let me just let me just clarify. Let me just clarify. On. I'm not saying there is there is not racism in the military. It is an organisation like any other. It's absolutely not what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, and True. and I have experienced that point racism. Um, mm-hmm. But isolated pockets. I just wanted to make a point. I'm not saying, oh, calling a black guy a flipping whatever is okay because it ain't, you know, yeah. depending on the context. <laughs> no, so this this what I was going to say was in society, like you say, the uh, military is a pocket. But in society, right now, we can go back to Brexit if we want to. But you know, we stood on. It's like we stood on two mountains looking at each other, and we're not. We're not talking to each other. We're just shouting because we're that far apart. And actually, the person who's talking a lot of sense right now, uh, love him or hate him, is Tony Blair. 
Tony Blair's saying you all need to come into the centre and, and reproduce a centrist politics where we actually talk to each other and, and you realise that there's a pragmatism and an, an honesty in the fact that, like you were saying at the top of this, there's different views, mate. Now, if you're not challenged in, in, in any way, you, you can't have any form of development. So, and I'm not saying, and you're not saying, hey, you know, if you're, if you're of this colour, you need, you know, a bit of this to, to sort yourself out. That's not what we're saying. Um, but what I'm, what I, I'm definitely um, in favour of, because it happened to me, and I'm only one example, I get that, and other people have different sensitivities and, and, and uh, different tolerances, that's all completely fair. But all I'm saying is, like, the idea of challenging yourself, the idea of questioning yourself, I, I, I would put a lot of money on the fact that I would not have gone through that period of development had I not joined an organisation where people were going to say to me, look, this is going to get really, really tough and we're going to have to say something. We're going to have to have some really honest chats with each I mean, like, look, people make a big thing about um, soldiers. And this is the other thing, by the way, I have to say about, like, the, the hero worship that goes on. It winds me up, mate, because for me... <laughs> where? Me, where? Where? It, like, it, like, when people say everybody should be... Everybody in the military is a hero. No, they're not. I wasn't a hero, okay? I did my job, and, 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 and some of my mates did some extraordinary things... And I think you should look at people who do extraordinary things and say that person did something special. That's why that person is 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 apart from us, and and that's a heroic thing to do. And some, you know, I'm not talking about men. Uh, I'm talking about men and women. You know, there's there's female medics who ran into gunfire to sort to to to, to do things. You know, in Afghan. So that's what I'm talking about. I, and I'm not a hero, so I hate, I hate all that hero worship. Um, but my point is, uh, the military is is a, a section of society where you can get challenged and is it in a safe environment? I don't know. I don't know. But it, I just think it's like, uh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. I, I just think what happened to me in the military, I had a positive experience and I'm in favour of using that as a, as a lesson, now continuously challenging myself and my beliefs and saying, is this something I really want to be doing? You know, is this the way I want to be living? You, you you understand things better. Can you imagine? Go, this is all like in our adulthood, like in our adulthood, like now when we have our beliefs and whatever you are, it could be extreme, it could be not. Just general day to day thinking that you have and 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 views on things. And then imagine never getting challenged. Imagine you and I never having this conversation because you're prompting me to think about things now. And we'll finish this podcast and it'll go. And I'll be thinking about what we're talking about tomorrow. And it, it'll go on. You know, I go okay. And then, you know, Adnan's experienced this and blah, blah, blah. And it just, it'll cause me to evolve my thinking, right? Because I had this mm. conversation, because no doubt there'll be a point where it challenges my way of thinking at some point. Mm. I mean, if you don't challenge yourself, it's equivalent to when you're a kid. Imagine going to school and, and going in to learn and the teacher never challenging what your answer is, never saying, mm, yeah. maybe not you, it could be this. And and then throw, it's like throwing your toys at the problem and going, no, I'm not listening to that teacher. You can't, you can't say that. I'm right. It's exactly what it is in, in a different way. I mean, um, going to the, the hero worship thing. The thing is with that, mate, I, I, I understand what it's about. And I can understand why people get agitated. But, and I hold your view, you know, I'm no more a hero than anyone else was. However, it's a perspective thing. 
you know, we're holding that perspective from having served. And you and I both saw some people do some amazing, unbelievable things. And some of them, some of them aren't here anymore to tell that tale. But then from outside the military, the, the hero worship is, is a valuable thing. I, I mean, look at the NHS now. The, the yes. people in the NHS probably thinking the same thing. But, you know, to me, whether you're a porter or whether you're a nurse in a COVID ward or whether you're a doctor who just happens to, I don't know, be doing some menial doctor's job, the same thing you've been doing for the last six months, you're all getting yeah. labeled the same thing. And right, and rightly so. It's the same kind of thing. You know, it's, it's a matter of perspective. I did not expect me to talk about this. I thought we were going to be talking about male me, genital mutilation. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. I've... I'm circumcised. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? Mate, I got a <laughs> We're taking a tangent here. We'll have to give some context around this. I've got a mate. So in fact, I'll name him Stu Hale. He was, uh, I think he was, which Coca. He's a really good mate of mine. We served, he served, we were buddy buddy snipers in uh, when we served. And uh, he's, he's circumcised. Man, they butchered him. I'm telling you, it's like he's got a willy. He's going to hate me for this. He's got a willy, and it's like he's got a little bit of gristle hanging off the end. It's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> it's disgusting. Hey. Right. So, you know, I, I, I did that program, and I uh, I, I, I watched um, a, a surgeon do it, and I watched him. I watched I watched a little kid get done. Uh, he well, was... Hang on, hang on, hang on. Why are we talking about this? Let's explain that. Explain why you've just gone from racism to male so, genital mutilation. Yeah, so so bit uh, so I, I did a documentary for the BBC on male uh, circumcision, and it was it was it was one of those documentaries that people had like skirted around, and not really had the conversation, and we needed to have that conversation because you know you, you it's good to create debate, and that's what uh, TV is really good for, or media is really good for. We can get onto the media actually in a bit, but anyway. Uh, the BBC, we did this documentary, and in it, what you do is we we looked at the three section of, sections of community in Britain who really do circumcision. So you've got Muslims, Muslims do it, you've got Jews who do it, and you've got black African Christians who do it. Really? And you need to, yes. Yeah, yeah. Nigerians, Nigerians do it. It's a sign of manhood. And, uh, and so... The two circumcisions that we witnessed on screen were a Nigerian baby boy who was, I think, uh, two two weeks, three weeks old, something like that. Um, and the, the the lad that we get seen done is nineteen years old. Okay, what? Nineteen years old, right? You, okay. So the there's a thing called phimosis. Gone. Is this in the UK? In the UK. In the UK. So Nigerian lad is in the UK and he says he's got phimosis, which is tight foreskin. And the way you solve that is with steroid cream. So you put steroid cream into your foreskin and it loosens it. And the other thing about uh, boys, which we all know, is boys play with their uh, themselves, okay? And uh, when you've got a tight foreskin, if you're a little kid, you play with it and it, it, it loosens. So you generally don't have any problems. And we were with a, a guy... Uh, who was public on the you know thing, uh, Gordon Muir, who's one of the leading experts in this in the UK. And uh, we were talking about you know whether whether it should happen or not, and, and the ethics of it, and the politics of it, and the legal issues of it, and the, the religious and the cultural and everything. And so we get we see these two people get done. And so for Nigerians, it's all about manhood and and and, uh, and passing into being being a man. And then I was circumcised when I was a little kid. Um, 
And generally, it goes fine. Like 90-odd percent of the time, it goes fine. But sometimes it goes wrong. And we meet one kid, a Jewish lad, who is anonymous. And unfortunately for him, it went wrong. And the person who was doing it did it wrong. And it, it, it's, it's mutilated him. Um, and in his own words, you know, he was talking about how he never wanted to get naked. And he, it, you know, this traumatized this kid. And, you know, he wouldn't, he didn't feel like he could be with anyone. You know, he didn't feel like he could get his clothes off next to a girl and all this kind of stuff. So, go on. How did it go wrong? What was, what was, he, what was he left with? Uh, we, we, we couldn't go into, he, honestly, this, this guy was in shock, right? So when we're talking to him, we have to blur his identity and everything. And, uh, and he wouldn't, you know, he's not going to show it to us, but he's talking about it. And he said, and, you know, he, it was so traumatic for him. He doesn't refer to his parents as his parents. He doesn't talk to them. He doesn't refer to their names. He says, them people who did this thing to me. And I was just like, oh, you know, like, because it went all right for me. I was, you know, I was fine. And that is, that's, that's the thing. The majority of people will be fine. But well, apparently, apparently in America, I think, I think the percentage is something like five. It's, some, it's, it's a huge percentage. It's five yeah. to ten percent. I might be getting this wrong. Five to ten percent, the operation goes wrong. And so it doesn't go perfect. And something like two yeah. percent of that, something like two percent are left. I mean, there's, there's people without penises because of infection. has just destroyed them. But I mean, here's a question for you. Why is male genital mutilation in the UK legal and female genital mutilation illegal? Why? Yeah. So um, the lawyers are looking at this at the moment, and this is why the documentary was timely. So we went to see a barrister, and he said female genital mutilation, you know, it became law that it's wrong to do that to females, okay? So that was off the books. Males, it was seen as, so there's a, a, a gradient, okay? So you've got females on one side and males on one side, and they said, at, at this level, at the, the, at the most minimum thing that you will do to a female, if you just cut it symbolically, right, down to removing it, so they, they were the gradients, the, the least thing you could do to a female was nowhere near what, what you, you know, like to a male, you could cut a bit of the foreskin, you could cut a little bit of it off, you could be symbolic or whatever. None of that was as bad as, as the minimum that you could do to a, 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 a lady. So that was completely banned. For girls, it was completely banned. So for males, it was, there was this kind of like gray area where it was saying, well, actually, it doesn't really hurt them and all this. So all this kind of stuff happened. Mm. But now the law is saying you can't tattoo uh, a baby boy. You can't tattoo. That, that's, that's seen as abuse. So, so why can you circumcise them? The, the pain and, threshold should have nothing to do with it. The pain threshold should have nothing to do with it. You, but, but you anesthetize uh, kids. If you watch the documentary, if they repeat it, um, they, they inject at the base of the penis. They, they go around and they inject in like a, like a clock and they inject and make sure. And, you know, the, the anesthetic works because, you know, it, it works. But cutting it literally, mate, if you've not seen it, they literally cut down with a pair of scissors and then, then cut around. It's... It's a yeah, Mental, anyway. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, like a, a friend of mine who isn't a Muslim and white lad, he had to uh, he had to get himself checked out because he was, he was just getting tight and tighter as he was growing up. Um, but they gave him steroid cream and it worked, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's medical reasons to have it done, but how did the making of the documentary? Come? In fact, how on earth did you get into documentary making up? Okay, so. Um, when I leave the army, 
I, I was very, very lucky. And I, I think luck is, uh, you know, luck, luck plays a big part in this. You know, so I joined the army and then I've got this military experience. And I'm and, in and, Manchester. And you played the race card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where is it? It's massive. Yeah. I, I just... Listen, friends well, no, can say these things. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is one of the things that uh, I, I get accused of by... Like, so I t- I'll tell you what I'm trying to do. I'm, try- I'm, tr- I'm trying my absolute best to have an honest conversation with people because... And, and, and you, you know, you, you're biased, okay? But I, I had a positive experience in the military, you know, so, so shoot me, you know. But So when I talk about the military, people go, yeah, but it's not like that. And when I first initially left the army, some journalists wanted the big racism story from me so some journalists really pushed for that and I was just like I I couldn't I couldn't recognize the stuff that they were talking about and I just said look I'm not the army's boy but equally those things didn't happen to me maybe you'll find them somewhere else but they didn't happen to me so anyway um I'm I I I leave the army and I'm hanging around in Manchester and uh and I I see this see this lady who I uh I, I fancy and she was in a coffee shop. And anyway, we get chatting. And she goes, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, I weren't doing anything at the time. And I said, you know, I've just left the military. And, you know, I, I'm looking for project management work. Were we all? And, you know, for my resettlement, I did a CP course, which was, the, which was one of the worst ideas. Because the guy who ran the course in Wales took the army's money and legged it to Dubai. So the course nearly collapsed. Who and, was the uh, company? Is the company still I, exists? I, no, it doesn't. No, but uh, the two the two instructors on it were really, really sound sound guys, and they said um, they said to me, you know, can you can you just help us? Like, and we'll we'll keep going with the course. And I'd done um, uh, I I I I had my glorious attempt at selection in two thousand six, uh, and um, and 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 then so I, I passed the hills, and then I, I came off later on. So I I didn't like I done a little bit like. A little bit of pistols and driving at uh, Hereford uh, training. So, so we ended up finishing this course. Um, what was my point? Yeah, project management. Anyway, so I'm, I'm chatting to this. I'm chatting to this girl who I fancy, and she says, complete pure luck. She says, um, my mate's working on a TV program and they need a military advisor, right? And so we swap phone numbers. This lady rings me up from from telly and says. Um, you know, I hear, I hear you were in the military. And I said, yeah. And she goes, uh, we've got a military advisor who's working with us right now. This is amazing. I want to find this guy. So she goes, we've got a military advisor working with us right now. And we don't know if he's genuine. Because every time we ring him, he, he, you know, he's, he's always being a bit shifty. And I said, all right. So what, what are the kind of things he said? And she said, he said, if you threw a grenade into a room... It take the whole. It take like the house down, right? So that was the first thing. And she said, and she said, so and she 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 said, I I don't think that's real, is it? I said, nah, that's that's not real, you know. And then the other thing she said was that he was saying he was a bodyguard for the queen, right? And I was like, look, there's a lot of alarm bells ringing here, right? And um, so I I said to her, so she goes, how can I find out if he was in the military? You can't get his service record or anything. I said, look, ask him for a picture of himself in uniform. And, I, and she said, she asked him and he said, oh, I don't have any. I said, every single person in basic training got a picture. Every single person who got 
you know, got their SA-80 on the range and wanted to show off to their mates, got a picture. Everybody's got a picture of the military, right? So I said, this guy's lying to you, right? I said, give me his bloody number. So we, anyway, they, they cut ties with this guy and they hired me because I said, look, I, I've done this and this is... And so I was like, okay. So I became a military advisor for film and TV behind the camera, teaching actors how to be soldiers. Mate, I'm not lying. It was, it was, it was the most paid I've been... I think in my life, it, it was ridiculous because it was drama. And all I had to do was show people how to do a section attack. Uh, I had to show people how to uh, literally get dressed and put your put your bungee cords on. I showed people um, just how to walk with a rifle. What um, was the production? So I did, I did a few, mate. I did... Uh, I did don't, uh, are you going to say our girl? Because if you are, don't say our girl. No, 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 no I didn't do that. I didn't do that one. I tell you what, mate. I tell you what, mate. This this is something that happens all the time, right? So military advisors. So, uh, so basically, my job was just to make these people like military, right? And uh, and then I, uh, do you know Jimmy McGovern? I know the name. He he wrote Cracker. Anyway, so he writes oh, a set yeah. of yeah, brilliant guy. He writes a set of dramas um, called The Street and the Accused, and I worked on those. And the first time I worked on it, um, like I had to go and chat to his actor and, and show him how to do stuff. And, and he was all right. The second time I did it was with Mackenzie Crook. Uh, you know, the guy who was in Pirates of the Caribbean. He was in the office. Mate, he's one of the soundest people I've met in my life. Brilliant guy. Took all the advice. And anything he wanted, he'd, he'd come up to me and goes, oh, would I do it like this? Would I do it like that? And he had to play a corporal who was bullying one of the troops in a... In a and, and this whole thing, mate, if I can find it, I'll send you a picture later on. This whole thing was filmed in a quarry in Bolton, and it looked like Afghanistan, right? And uh, at the time, they were looking for extras as well. And the director says, "Look, dude, like you know, and I, at the, I had really long hair and a big beard, right?" And he said, "Do you mind dressing up?" I was like, "No, no let's do it, mate." So I was playing the Taliban. I was in. Uh, I had an AK-47, and I was on the side of this quarry in Bolton, mate. Somebody took a picture of me. I looked at it and I was like, I've got to get rid of that off my phone. It was, it's amazing. It's an amazing <laughs> picture, right? Um, I'll find it for you. But, but, the, but the, the, the point was, yeah, so I'm, I'm behind the camera and I'm, and I'm getting, getting all this stuff right and I'm getting this experience. So I did some ITV dramas, did some BBC stuff. And then, you, then mistakes get made, right? Um, like they'll have the military advisor on for, for this part and then that guy or that girl will disappear and then, you know, then you'll see later on You'll see an actor with his berry on backwards and, you know, the guy wasn't on set that day and it'll, it'll be embarrassing for everyone. So, And the army loves picking this kind of stuff up. But I did those things and I, and I, and I felt like I was getting somewhere. And I thought, you know what? You know, I've done the military. I'm, I'm getting somewhere here in TV. I've got to go and do um, a qualification or go and, you know, put something on my CV which says I am this person now. And Jimmy McGovern, bless his heart, uh, you know, wrote me a reference and all this kind of stuff. And I got into, without having a bachelor's degree, and you can do this as a mature student, I got into Salford University as a mature student to do a master's in film production. And I specialised writer, director, and I made six short films in the year. And I came out with a master's degree, mate. And I'm not an ex-officer. I come out with a master's degree in film production, and I'm in the industry then. Um and it went, it went all right for a bit. And I, and I was then in front of the camera a couple of times, you know, with the, with the Taliban stuff. And then, like, it, it, then it started going really 
crazy. Like I was at the National Theatre playing uh, playing a, a militant, and I was in I was in the um, I was in the audience, and every every show I'd have to jump up with this shit made out of marzipan and peanut butter, and run up to the stage and shout, "This is Islamophobic shit!" And you know, and just get, just get like just get the crowd a bit like. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't do it now, uh, but this was uh, 2012 or so, 2011 or so. And at one point, mate, w- w- one thing that happened, which was brilliant, was I'm unwrapping this uh, this package to just go and fling it, right? And there's a guy in front of me, and he turns around, and he goes, what are you doing? And I was like, I was like, you know, shut up, mate. And he, he's like, no, no. He's like, what are you doing? I'm a police officer. And I was just like, oh, man. Uh, and then I was like, dude, I'm, I said, I'm, I'm just one of the actors. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I've just got to do this thing. And he said to his kids, he goes, oh, oh, brilliant. He goes, oh, watch this, kids. This is going to be awesome. And I, and I did this thing, right? And then, I, then I, I, just, I just run away and it shocks the audience, all this kind of stuff. But the only people, the only people who stopped me, and this is, mate, this is a theatre of about six, 700 people, was that off-duty copper, if he's, if he's watching, hello, um, two squaddies who were in there, with their missuses and an old fella, I don't know if he was ex-services, and he said, "That's exactly the kind of intolerance we don't want around here. Get out!" or something like that. And I was just like, oh, "Okay, well done, mate." But I, anyway, so I, I I was doing I was doing that, and uh, you know I was always like, um, and you know I was getting like I was getting called for for films. It was, uh, but I was always like you know terrorist number seven or something. You know, you know, and I, and I thought I'm going to work my way up here. I'm going to be terrorist number one one day. And then, uh, and then something mad happened, mate. I, mate like mate, Os- I, Osama's your big role, <laughs> mate. I, well, well, the thing, the thing is, like at that time, British Asian actors were saying, "I'm offended. I'm offended that you know we're having to play terrorists and taxi drivers." And I was like, "Guys, it's a truth, right? That's happening. I play it. You know, I was like, I'm not, I'm, you know, and I, I, I don't think I'm doing anything bad to my community by doing portraying something that's actually in the news." And I need the work, you know. So I was trying to, I was trying to get there, mate. And this thing happens, and I, I was just like, oh man, I could not believe it. I got called to uh, the Bond film Skyfall, and I'm supposed to be one of Javier Bardem's bad guys storming a building, going after Daniel Craig. And I was just like, is this really happening, right? I, I, spoiler, it collapses after this. But anyway, so, so I'm, I'm in there, and I'm kicking this door down, and I'm doing a room clearance. And there's a couple of stunts guys there. They're all ex-forces and stuff. And they were like, oh, mate, you know, that looks really good. You know, well done and all that. And I was like, oh, brilliant. And I thought I was going to get it, mate. And I, I didn't get it. You know, I was uh, – at the time, I was running like three half marathons a week. I, I was very wiry. I weren't muscly. You know, and the they big black lads, uh, and, and I think they got it. And that, mate, was a massive payday. Just being an extra on a Bond film, storming a building – was was huge i didn't get it and then after that i didn't get anything and then um and and then and then i ended up and then i ended up at that at the age of 32 with this cv that was building in tv with, with nothing and so i was chatting to a mate of mine who's from burnley as well and we were living in london together as i like, mate it's all it's all gone it's all i don't know what to do and he just said you're just gonna have to reinvent yourself or you're just gonna have to you, you're going to have to do something about it. And I I was not the guy, and this is, I think this is part of the military, I was not the guy who could get on the bus home and go and rely on my parents and say, mum, dad, you know, things have, things have screwed up. 
can you bail me out? I was like, no way. If I, you know, I've got my legs, I've got my arms, I'm, I'm going to go and do some work, right? So at the age of 32, I take a job in a restaurant. I'm on £7.50 an hour. This is, this is post-Bond film, you know, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm doing £7.50 an hour. And this, uh, this guy hires me, mate, and he goes, right, can you just stand on the door and open the door for us? I was like, yeah, no worries. It's really easy. And I had to control a queue. It was next to Stringfellows, this, um, this restaurant. I was in London. Yes, in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On Common Garden, yeah. So I had to control a, a, a queue. And it was a huge queue. This Indian restaurant, huge queue, right? I was just controlling this queue. And I was there for four years, mate, right? In that four years, uh, I ended up having uh, two altercations. Um, and they weren't, you know, I'm not a fighter, mate. I'm not into it. So I don't, I don't want to get into it. And but this guy, one day, a guy comes around the corner, and he's just pilled up or whatever, and he starts harassing some people. And at that point, I'm stood in front of a restaurant with all these people. I was like, oh, okay, he's over there. He comes over to the restaurant, starts picking our tables up and starts chucking them into our windows. They don't smash, but I start dealing with him, and I'm and I'm lent over this guy in the middle of St Martin's Lane in uh, in Covent Garden. And he's trying to like punch me and I'm just holding him down, just restraining him. And the police turn up and I, mate, I don't know why I said, I mean, it's true, but this copper grabs me and I went, oh, mate, I'm ex-British Army. And, and he just goes and he grabs this other guy, throws him in the back of the wagon. And this other guy shouts, I'm going to fucking kill you. And the copper goes, oh, we got the right guy then. And I just like, um, so anyway, the, these kind of like, Things were happening to me in my 30s, and I'm there. You know, I'm not feeling great about myself. You know, I'm an ex ex uh, uh, engineer who's who's done you know well for himself in 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 different places and qualified in EOD and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, at the exact same time, uh, let's go back to my failed selection attempt. At the exact same time, in the special forces briefing course, there's another engineer, and uh, and I can't tell you his name. He's he's still in, and he made it, and. Uh, he kept tipping up to the to the restaurant, and I was just like, "All right, mate, how are you doing?" He said, "Yeah." He goes, um, and, "And he just he'd come back from Afghan doing some whatever stuff he, he was doing, and he'd come back and he'd be like, you know, just keep keep going, mate, keep going." And it was that army, you know, I don't want to get all like uh, teary eyed or weird about it, but it was that army family that 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 that, that locked in back around me and just went, "No, don't worry, mate, it's all fine. Don't worry about it." And he just kept pushing me and I was like okay cool nice one so I just stayed for four years on 750 an hour but what I did at the time was I was like right I need to retrain myself I need to get a different um, job or role or something and somebody buys me a book they bought but they buy me dispatches by Michael Herr which is one of the best books I've ever read so I read that book mate and I just got it blows my mind I'm like I said to him I'm gonna become a writer and he's like, oh well done mate I said no I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it and I became a weirdo. I wouldn't let anybody come to lunch with me. I won't let anybody get on public transport with me. And I read, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. I read about 500 books in four years, mate, right? Some of them were like, you know, short and stuff, but I read about 500 books. In that time, I'm writing like hell, and I win the Financial Times essay prize for an essay called British Muslim Soldier. So the Financial Times do a joint essay prize with Penguin. So Penguin and Financial Times... And I win this prize in 2013. And I'm on the front page of the Financial Times, right? 
And he's really proud of me. I'm really proud of me. My dad doesn't even read English, and he's buying up all the Financial Times in Burnley. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, I, I, and I've done something. I've done something, you know, big. And, and then I'm writing for the Financial Times as a, as a doorman, and people are writing to me on Twitter thinking I'm some guy who's sitting in an office in the FT just banging away. And I was like, guys, you know, I'm this door guy, you know. And, and then... And then I win another literary, I, 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 I came runner up in another literary prize. And then at the age of 36, four years of, of the door, I get an internship at the Economist newspaper. And then within about four months, I become uh, assistant editor and then I become the editor of my team. And, and I, right, go on, sorry. No, yeah, go on, go on, go on. So at the age of 36, I become an intern at the Economist. And at The Economist, for an intern, they pay 24 grand a year, right? So that's good. Uh, they don't, you know, you know, they, they pay you a good, good wage. And then I get, like, three promotions straight after the other. And, and I get lots of, mate, so I moved from London City Airport near Canning Town, which is one, when, like, a really, I'm living in a place where you don't need an alarm clock because the, the police are kicking somebody's door in at six o'clock. You know, it's all kind of like there was, there was a paedophile who got murdered just behind my house. You know, that's where I was living, right, when I was on the door. And uh, at the time, I was, you know, I was crapped with money. So I was walking home sometimes. It was like eight miles to walk home. So I was walking on three hours, listening to In Our Time with uh, Melvin Bragg, just learning all the time. And then I get to The Economist and I just, I just say, why not, right? And I just go and, I go and rent a flat in the best area in London, mate. Cost me a fortune. But, I, I was, mate, I was living in Holland Park, mate. Right next to Notting Hill, had this huge apartment. And it was just, I just had a party, mate, you know, for, for, about, for about a year. Um, anyway, this is the weird thing. So I'm a doorman. Then I'm editing at a newspaper, which is one of the best newspapers in the world. At the same time, I get auditioned to do a documentary for the BBC. Right, you know, and so I start doing the documentaries and, I, and the BBC sent me off to travel the whole of Pakistan, crazy, and then I travel the whole of Iraq next uh, for the BBC and then my boss at The Economist says, look, you know, if this, if this carries on, you're gonna have to, um, you're gonna have to make a choice between the newspaper and TV and I was like, okay, cool. And then the BBC and me were talking about another thing, so I, I left the newspaper, that thing didn't happen, but then I ended up, doing stuff at Channel 4. I've done two documentaries for Channel 4, just done two for ITV. So anyway, that's how I got... Sorry. Long, long it's all right, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to screamers being on permanent set when they're talking okay. to the reg. There you go, mate. There you go, mate. There you go, mate. No, mate. I, I was, when you were that's talking it. there... <laughs> when you were talking there, it, it, you talk about The Economist. So... For people listening or watching or whatever, so I met you the, the the day I did the Ben Griffin podcast, which is one yeah. of the most popular podcasts I've done. Actually, yeah, yeah. we're he, off the really scales. Yeah, yeah, with, with it, and it's yeah. I know that's a different that's a different subject. So Ben being ex Hereford, uh, yeah. ex Tupara, veterans of, or was veterans for peace, you know, coordinator, UK coordinator, and then he introduced we went for a pint after because I didn't know him. Ben, what a mega bloke, and he introduced me at the pub, and I <laughs> that was man, that was like. That was nearly two years ago. You're in Africa. Yeah. And I remember talking to you, and I was like, I was like, what's your story? <laughs> kind of thing. And then you were telling me in abbreviated fashion over a couple of uh, over a couple of London prides that story. 
And it's like, you were more amazed than I was. Like, you're going, yeah, da 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 And the culmination of the story was, and I'm like, because you ended up, didn't you not end up managing marketing or internet marketing or social media marketing for The Economist as well? Yeah, I was, not, I, was, like, I, was, I, was, I was the head of social media. So I, mate, that's I, had, right, yeah. I had a Mental. team of 12 people, two in New York, one in Hong Kong, uh, you know. The, the thing is, right, Adnan, is this, is that a, man, you're like you're like a representation of like the struggle military folk go through when they leave, and like the most successful you the the best way of, the the best example of how it can um, how finding a way through that struggle can be a success. You know, we leave the military and essentially we're into a new culture, and we ain't got a clue. We've not got a clue, especially if you joined at sixteen. Less so if you're eight. I joined at eighteen. When I left, didn't have a clue, mate. Didn't have a clue, right? Didn't know what I wanted to do. I did like you, CP, did that for four years and then came back to the UK four years after leaving and still had no clue what I was doing, right? <laughs> the thing is, the, the, what, what you have to accept when you leave is that in terms of uh, where you think your status is in society, professionally or personally, right, where you think you should be, you are not going to be where you think you should be, okay? Yeah. Because there's, a, there's a, a period of learning that needs to take place. And that's for you to reintegrate yourself back into the civilian culture. Completely different. That period of learning could be a short while or it can be a long while. And there's not there's there's nothing, there's no really hard and fast ways you can make it shorter. It just depends on the kind of person you are, kind of career you had, the kind of culture you go back into, the kind of the kind of direction you want to go in. And most of the time we don't know what direction we want to go in, which is exactly like you, right? Yeah. And I mean the key thing. I didn't realize you worked at restaurant for four years until you just mentioned it. Remember, we mentioned it before, but four years, mate. And I, when you, I mean, when you said it just now, I, like, well, I you probably saw it, but I was like, Jesus Christ, four years. But, but the thing is, you have to do that. Yeah. There has to be, there has to be a swide, uh, a swide, a pride swallowing moment. There's yeah. got to be for everyone. Yeah. And the reason I say it is this. It is very unlikely that you get out and get the job of your dreams, one, or the job that gives you your desirable income, two, okay? It's quite likely you can get a job that meets your income needs, but not what you desire. However, the fact is, it is much easier to get yourself onto the path that you want to be on, either towards the income you want or in the type of job you want, if you've got a job already. It does not matter what that job is. It doesn't matter if it's minimum wage. It doesn't matter if it's a little bit above. It doesn't matter if it's in the industry you want to be in or not. But when you've got an income, and even if that's an income when you live with your parents, if you've got to live with your parents, you've still got an income. You're still not that. You mentioned before, you're not the kind of person to go back and rely on your parents. Are any of us who are military? Mm-hmm. Very, very few of us are because we've talked to be self-reliant. Okay, yeah. And the yeah. only time you would end up doing that, relying on your parents, but mate, I'll be completely honest, since like I've had to do it, especially since I got divorced, you know, things are down the pan for me in, in a multitude of ways. I've had to do it, rely on my parents for different things. And Jesus Christ, man, that is the hardest thing I have ever had to do, ever. Turn around to parents and ask for help. When I'm 30 odd years old, mate, it near on destroyed me. One of the things that near on destroyed me. It's just because you, same as you, you think back and you go, hang on a minute. I was a fucking sniper in the parachute regiment. I did X, Y, and Z tours. I was a fucking platoon sergeant. And mm. now, this is in my head. And now, I'm having to ask my parents for help who are like elderly, what are you doing? It's a killer, mate. It's a killer. Mm. 
But the fact of the matter is, you can't help the circumstances to bring you there. What you can do is you can absolutely always get yourself a wage. And you can, you have to have money, even if you don't need the money. Let's say you're on, relying on your parents or relying on your mates or whatever. Or, you know, or the council or handouts or, you know, whatever. But if you've got money coming in, it's you're doing something to help yourself. Mm. You're doing something. And that makes it easier. It relieves a little bit of pressure and it makes it easier to find the route you need to be on or where you want to be. Which is exactly what happens to you, mate. Four years in a restaurant, the doors, fucking hell. People, I guarantee you, mate, people listen to this and go, I'd never fucking do that. Well, sometimes you have to. And it's not a bad it's not a bad thing. It's no. not a bad thing. No, I, look, you know, I won't, I won't, uh, you know, I, I, like I say, I don't lie about these things. I don't pretend, you know, oh, I don't pretend like I came from some, like, you know, fancy background and that's why I worked for The Economist. The, the, you know, I fought to get everywhere. But the the period on that door, uh, quite honestly, God's honest truth, as, as, as awful as it was sometimes and as least paid as it was sometimes, it was one, again, like that guy coming to me in that four-man room, it was one of those, you know, life-changing moments where I had a massive period of failure, development, thinking, reflection, and, and growing. And I, and I grew from it, man. You know, dude, I read so many books, right? And, and you can look this up. I read so many books. I was critiquing Chinese poetry in the Financial Times. What I mean, what are you talking about? I'm from Burnley, mate. You know, and I was doing that because I'd read, I'd read it all. I'd read it all, mate. You know, and that's the thing. It was kind of like it, beca- it became an obsession. Books became like I knew that they were going to save me. I knew it because I was like seven pound fifty for one hour. That's a book. So I'd go down to Foils and grab a book, and and I'd be like, anybody you wanted to hang around with me at lunchtime was like, it's a no go. I don't care. You know, I'm reading this book, mate. I read uh, Why Men Fight by Bertrand Russell. And, uh, you know, the, the thing in there, he says, no man will ever be satisfied working for a massive organization, no matter how much that organization is making. He'd be far happier working for himself in a smaller operation, earning a lot less money. You know, there, there was things like uh, in dispatches when he says, oh, he says this thing in dispatches. So that he's uh, Michael Hur is this, this journalist from New York and he's hanging out with the U.S. Marines in the Vietnam War. And they're just surrounded by this triple canopy rainforest. And uh, and one of the Marines says, it's a nice view, isn't it? You know, having having a joke with him. And he says, yes, but you could get in a helicopter, rise above the canopy and see hot tropic sunsets, which would change the way you thought about light forever. And that line stayed with me. And I was just like, that's amazing. And, you know, every single book rolled me into another one. Chimpanzee Politics by Franz Wall. This is a guy who watched chimpanzees for 17 years in a zoo, in Arnhem Zoo. And then, uh, was it Arnhem? Anyway, in, in, in Holland, sorry. So he, he watches these chimpanzees, he writes the story of their, of their lives together, how they interact. It became a huge book for US politicians because they thought, if we know how people work with their naked ambition, this is how we can influence them. And all these books fed into things that I wrote, that I spoke about. I could reference things. I could hold my own, mate. You know, after four years on the door, I could hold my own with people and just say, because, like, quite honestly... I felt thick, you know, and and I felt like that for a lot of my life because I was surrounded by different people with different cultures and different experiences. And I always felt people had something, they had a secret that I did. They did read a book that I hadn't read and, you know, and I, I needed to get but, there. But that's not a bad way of looking at people. So one of the, one of the sort of lessons I've learned, and I, and I try and, not that I'm a preacher, but it's, one, it's a really important one to me. And I think uh, it, it's uh, the way you look, 
the other people and and it's the it, in fact i spoke about it recently actually i did do you know what? i think it brought up tiktok mate it's flipping gaz gaz from sanita's guild has ended up getting me on tiktok it's ridiculous <laughs> it, not not dancing but like for the podcast but it's something that you have you were on tiktok you put your podcast on tiktok yeah i oh, yeah cool. i just, just i'm yeah Okay, anyway, it's a different conversation. But um, one of the things we have is we have this. I, I'm trying to remember where I got into this. Uh, what were you talking about just now? One of, the, one of the ways to see people. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right, absolutely. You said you have felt that people had something that you didn't. Well, we have this. So to bring me on to that point, we have this. Uh, people in general, I'm just generalizing. People have this fear of being wrong. Yeah, and they have this aversion to being wrong. One of being wrong. Well, sometimes people, they don't mind being wrong, but they fucking hate admitting it. Mm. They hate admitting it to themselves or hate admitting it to other people. And I, I sort of, I, I thought about this in my head. It's been, I thought, I, I put this into words and try and contextualize, not contextualize, try and form it so it's, I can explain what I'm thinking to people. And it's this, it's like, like wait, uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with being wrong because in identifying you of being wrong, the value in that is you've invariably learned something you didn't know. Which has caused you to realize, God, I was wrong. But you've learned. You've learned in the process. It's not that bad. And on the, on, the, on the subject of like admitting you were wrong or being the person who who is quite open to saying, yeah, I was wrong. You were right and I was wrong. It makes you more valuable. You're more valuable in in, in society, more valuable in your community, your friends, and in work. Because where what do you put more value in? If I had two friends and one is someone who is really intelligent and, you know, is really like forward thinking or whatever. And they've got loads of life experience, but I can't tell when they're telling the truth or not. Cause I know they've been wrong in the past. And they said, no, 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 I wasn't wrong. Mm. I, I, no, no. I, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I knew that. Whatever. Right. And I got another friend who's, who's less sort of experienced, less knowledgeable, but I can guarantee every time if they're wrong, they'll admit it because they're open to learning. The person who's more valuable than those two people is the person who's less experienced, less knowledgeable, but is honest because it demonstrates integrity. So in like the admittance of being wrong to yourself and to others where it's necessary, mm. there's integrity and honesty. That's what it demonstrates. Now, come on to your uh, thinking that other people know that, what you don't. Absolutely true. It's one of those things that, again, it comes on to the conversation where th- there's, there's huge value in having dialogue with people or people or groups or communities or organizations or countries with a different view to you because the absolute fact of the matter is Adnan, whether it's you or me or me and someone Chinese or me and someone American or me and someone from the next village along in Wales, right? I can guarantee you know things I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I know things you don't know. And I can never know everything you know and you can never know everything I know. So you have intrinsic, intrinsic value to me that I can't get from anyone else. Mm-hmm. You're the only person who experienced what you have experienced and the knowledge you have. No one else has that set. You have value to me in that way. In the same way a stranger walking down the street, in the same way a person who says to me, you're racist for calling that guy a bastard in, in, in when you were in training. Yeah, they're a wanker for saying that. because <laughs> They're wrong. They still have value to me. They have different experiences, different knowledge. We, that's how we have to see people. It, yeah. It's not a bad thing that you don't know what they don't. Yeah. It just means every person has a value to everybody else. We don't see it that way these days. Everyone is of benefit to you, and you can't have a gain from those people unless you engage with them and try to understand them and try to experience them. I think that's the point I was making and what you were saying there. It's not a bad thing. You can't no, know everything. No, you're, no, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, let me just turn the light on if, if this works because – 
Uh, am I getting dark there? Or you were dark at the start of the podcast. Wait. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> right, I feel like I'm gonna give it, I feel like the gloves are off because it's. <laughs> it's I'm dangerous. Really getting dangerous. Um, <laughs> Uh, what, what were you just saying? You, there? YouTube's going to pull this video for racism. No, no, so, so this, this is the other, this is the other thing I was going to say about what you just said about, about learning from people. Now you've jumped out of planes. I've jumped out of planes. Now when you're on the ground, and somebody, somebody has to teach you that, some, you know, and you have to trust that person. They definitely know more than you. Like you were saying, we can talk to the guy in the next village and all that kind of stuff. That, that's fine. But this is somebody who's physically teaching you a way. And saying to you, you have to trust me that this static line or whatever, whichever way you do it, this static line is going to pull that shoe and this is the way the shoe is going to work. And and this person has done it before and they are passing this down to you. And then you become that, you get that qualification and you go, okay, yeah. You have to completely trust that person because you're about to go out the door. And I remember the first time I did it, I was with this ex-Marine guy. And uh, so I did a couple of jumps in Civvy Street and then I got in the military and I did some, uh, it was all sports parachuting. But um, I remember being down at Netherwave and having to re- redo the whole thing because the civvy thing I'd done was ages ago. But, um, but yeah, so somebody is saying to you, this is a set of knowledge that's been passed down to me and I'm going to pass it down to you because you've, you know, said you want to do sports parachuting, so we're going to go and jump out of a plane. Yeah, they, they absolutely know more than you and you absolutely have to listen to them. Otherwise, you're going to get this wrong and it's not going to go well. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I think, yeah, you're right. There is this intrinsic value, but there's also this thing that whereby the things that you choose to do, um, and that's just a physical way of looking at it, is like you have to know these things to jump out of that plane. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, it also ties into, you know, this, this, this acknowledgement and understanding that everyone in society has a value. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, it, it ties into the whole, you know, the, the, the greatest teams and the most diverse teams, which is what makes. I mean, do you know what I love about Power Edge? Uh, and it's probably similar, it probably similar with EOD and some other units. Mm. What I loved about Power Edge was we didn't have a catchment area. We mm. did not have a catchment area. You get units that are, you know, you get Royal Irish who predominantly recruit from Northern Ireland and fucking Manchester for some bizarre reason, right? But not bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> And you get, you know, jock regiments and you get other regiments who've got geographical catchment areas. Yeah. What I love about Power Edge, Marines are the same with some of the units, EOD, some of the units are like that, no catchment area. Is that the diversity you get within that community of people which you're serving, man, it's it's so beneficial. Like, mm. you know, from from religious differences to uh, where the countries you come from. Man, I serve with Fijians, New Zealanders, South Africans, uh, flipping Australians, Muslims, uh, you know, uh, Jews, all sorts of people from all over the country. The perspective that gives you when you're a young lad or a young lady, depending on which unit you're in, you know, if you're in the Marines, you could be a young lady. <laughs> I had to get it in there, right? The perspective that gives you it sets you so far ahead of your civilian peers, okay, in terms yep. of experience and understanding. But it's invaluable, which is one of the reasons, which is it's one of the sad things, one of the unfortunate things is that when we leave the military, we every time do ourselves a disservice in, in, in how valuable, valuable we are just, just in terms of experience. Mm-hmm. Because we understand it so little, 
Anyway, I'm, go- I'm going off track. I'm going off track. Um, well, no, actually, you've got you've got a really good point there. Um, now, like I say, I didn't speak Arabic. I'm learning Arabic now. I'm learning Arabic properly. But at the time in the Iraq War 2003, I didn't speak Arabic. I spoke a few words, but I've got an Arabic name. And what we found was the first people we come across, so we crossed the border with the United States Marines, and then they set up camp. And then that morning, there's a water bowser coming across our position. And somebody in our camp shouts, suicide bomber. And then the US Marines like aim off for this, this uh, water bowser. And then my OC, who's there at the time, says, why don't you go and talk to those people? And I was like, yeah, OK, let's do it. You know, at this point, I think everybody assumed that I was actually fluent in Arabic. Thanks so much. <laughs> but anyway, so I was like, oh, OK, I'll go and talk to them. So I'm like pegging it over to these guys. And these two US Marines are there. And they said, all right, you know, you're going to go forwards. I was like, yeah. And then so I gave them my a body armor, my helmet and my rifle and everything. Because I was thought, there's no point going over to these guys and, and going over there, like, you know, looking like a beetle. Do you remember that army advert where the guy takes off his sunglasses? In the 80s? No. Oh, it was ages ago. It was ages ago. Some guy shouting and he's got clashing off. He takes his glasses off and the guy just calms down. Anyway, it was a, it was a very famous British Army advert in the 80s. But anyway, so I, I just go over to this guy, you know, completely clean. And this water bowser stops. And we start talking. It's a family. They're driving around the desert because in the shelling the day before, their house has been destroyed. They don't understand what they're supposed to be doing with their life right now. And the US Marines are there on my left and there's this other British soldier here and I, and I go talking to them and I, and I you know, assalamu alaikum, just that, you know, Anna Adnan, it's me Adnan, my name is Adnan, boom. The, the you know, the, the stress level came right down. We could communicate. We started talking, we started drawing shapes in the sand. We got somewhere, we communicated. And I just think about that reaction had it just been the US Marines not being able to talk to people. I'm not, I'm not, I've not got a thing against the US Marines. I think there were, you know, like people have a go at the Americans all of the time. But actually, I've, do, I've done a video on this on YouTube called Meet the Americans where, you know, I met some of the most professional people, uh, the most funniest and the most complicated, just like any section of society. Of course, there were idiots. There's idiots everywhere. There's idiots in civilian life, you know. But, um, yeah, I just think the interaction between two U.S. Marines who, who maybe didn't know what, what was going on with these Iraqis would have been different had it not been. And all it was was a brown face talking to somebody in a little bit of their own language with a name that's similar that they can recognize. And it, it, was, it was such a capability. We deployed it a few times, me and my, me and my Arabic. But I used to love those times because I was, I, was, uh, I was the OC's driver in the Iraq war. And uh, he was a nice, nice chap. Um, but uh, what I didn't like was, you know, being put in the signal center saying, right, you know, you've got a couple of shifts here for today. I was like, I want to be out and about. I want to be out and about. And, and when I got out and about was because there was an Iraqi there. Nobody could speak Arabic to them. And they was like, get called Sawa. And I was just like, mate. And by that point, I was like, yeah, OK, yeah, yeah. I speak, I speak Arabic. I speak Arabic. Let's go. But anyway, so my point is, it was a capability that came out of us needing to get a job done. And it worked. But there's this huge value in a familiar face or a familiar appearance, not just face. You know, it's not only a similar name, but straight away, just you look different to white people. You look sort of similar to... Iraqi to skin tone. It yeah. straight makes makes you sure familiar in the same way as um, in the same way that uh, if I was in you know if I was in um, if I was in man, in fact when I was in like Mozambique when I was deployed with Team Rubicon out in Mozambique last year you know there's a you, you get mostly black people in Mozambique mostly speak flipping Portuguese or there's English speakers there but I remember meeting meet a couple of 
I mean, there was one kid, mate, Albino. Yeah. Albino Mozambique kid. I mean, talking about getting the shittest luck in the world. Albino ginger kid, mate. It was was he no, it was like it was like really light blonde, almost ginger. Yeah. Man, this kid was just covered in I mean, it was a nightmare. When I was a kid, he was probably probably fifteen, covered in just covered in scabs and red, just because he in Mo, Mozambique sun. Just just mm. hideous man. But like that's that to me that was oh someone familiar white skin there's a there was a white Mozambican guy who owed like um a, 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 like a, a in inverted commas a beach resort there um white skin he's still as Mozambique as everyone else he speaks Mozambique he also speaks English but I see familiarity in him so I feel more comfortable around him it's not it's hard mate the way you perceive things in people it's uh, it's very odd mate we got like uh, what time are we on I'm just looking around the corner of the elastic band holding my phone on. Uh, we've got about ten minutes. Ten minutes. Tell okay. me about. Tell me about what you. Tell me about you. What you're working on now on YouTube? Cause I've seen you upload stuff. I've not okay. had a chance to watch it yet. This is your diary, right? Yeah. What, what? So what? Yeah. What I've done is uh, because of, because of this lockdown, um, I've always I've always like I've always wanted to like I've always had to produce something. I've always I've, I've always had to do some kind of work. So it's just the fidgety person that I am. And I had this diary. I've got a bit of it here. But so what I did was, I, I took you know I don't I don't publicise it I don't I'll, I'll take out anything that's sensitive, but I um, I've gone through it and just talk about the first first episode is called writing the war down. Why did why did I even write the war down? What who the hell did I think I was? Why did I write a diary? Well I got this book from the US Marines this, and then the next next bit I go on to it and I go well who were the Americans anyway? You know, and what it is is it's it's a guy in his forties reflecting on the soldier he was in his twenties. And and not not allowing any kind of uh, lie to, to 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 force itself in there because we can all be experts later on about the Iraq War and say oh I don't think this should have happened I don't think that should have happened but no I was a 24 year old kid running out, away from Burnley for an adventure that's exactly why I'm in the diary and I laugh at myself now because some of the stuff that I wrote there I don't know who the hell I thought it was and it was amazing. Isn't it? And there's, there's there, there, like one of the, la- the recent episodes, there was a lady from uh, England who I've never met before in my life. There was a lot of letters that went out and she started writing me bits of the Bible. And, uh, you know, it didn't offend me or anything. I was just like, oh, OK. So she said, it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, Christian, whatever. It just matters that you believe and you've got faith. And here's something. And one of the things she sent me was, um, uh, is it a song of a sense? Psalm one, two, one. I lift up my eyes. Uh, where does my help come from? The Lord helps me, or, or something like that. Anyway, are, there, you, ask, are, are you asking me because I'm white and you think I'm like Christian? You, where, where's your Bible, mate? Anyway, like, <laughs> so uh, so anyway, it, it, yeah. So I'm doing that. I'm just I'm just going through my um, uh, Iraq diary and, and reliving it, and also you know realizing things about myself which at the time I thought, oh, I thought this, I thought that. So it's just, it's just, an, anyway, it's all on YouTube. Uh, there's about 14 parts right now. It's probably going to run to about 25 parts, and they're all about 10 minutes each. And you can catch up on on things. And a lot of people in the, you know, a lot of people in the military are reading it. Um, my ex CEO is now in the Australian military. So he did. He finished his 20 officers do 18, didn't they? He finished his 18 or 20, whatever it was here, and then he went off and did it. He he took over a, a unit in Australia. And, and he's reading it. He's reading it on LinkedIn and he's watching it and stuff and he's commenting on it. So it's just kind of like, and I reach out to Iraqis and I say, tell me your truth as well. And I reach out to former soldiers. I serve with them. So tell me your truth as well. Comment, you know, add to it. 
it's like an archive where, let's say you were studying war studies right now and you went, well, what did the soldiers even think about? It's all here, mate, you know. That's what I'm doing. I, I, and there's, like, work-wise, I've got, I've got absolutely zero coming up and I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not bothered about it at the moment because I just think we're here right now and I've, I've you know, I've signed up to Team Rubicon because of you. Um, when I saw oh, them, yeah, yeah because oh, the thing I thought it was, I thought it was incredible. I looked them up, and the guys, Richard Sharp, he was on LinkedIn talking. He did a little video. I thought it was amazing. Um, so I started, I started signing in, and then it said, you know, have you got specialist medical skills? You could use them in different. So I've done. I've got like medicine remote areas, and I've got FREC, a first responder emergency care and stuff. I tried to volunteer to the NHS, but they've had half a million applications or something. They're trying to run through them, so I couldn't do that. And there's, there's, you know, there's not been a lot of taskings in my area, unfortunately. But so anyway, what I'm trying to do is exactly like you, mate. Keep producing something. Keep skipping in the yard. You know, keep following the rules. Keep, you know, trying to volunteer, trying to help people when they, when they need help. Just, just be that person. On on that point, um, on that point, like I was just thinking, you and I, I think we're similar. We, for me, I need to feel like I'm a benefit. I mean, like professionally a benefit. So in the role, in the job I'm in. Um, and I think recently over the last couple of years, certainly since, you know, I found things difficult, found life difficult. And then I've been helped through life by friends, community, organizations. Um, I, I feel like I want to be, try and give something back and just help back. But the fact of the matter is, is that, <clears throat> Not everybody's like that, and it's not—it's not a bad thing. Like, yeah. I've got a friend called—I've got a friend called John Broom. John was on the podcast before. I love John. He's mad as a box of fish, right? He's mad as a box of fish, but he's got a heart of gold. He's a mega bloke. And John, we've had—we speak to each other relatively regularly, and he has this thing. He—he he can never understand. It really frustrates him. He can never understand why ex-military folk, and he—he he is always specific about like. Where, you know, where, where him and I, we both served in three parts, where him and I came from. And he's like, you can never understand why people who served with us have now left and they're happy to be in, in, in as he says, in inverted commas, shit jobs. So they're happy to be, and I'm not saying these are shit jobs, right? They're just normal jobs. Mm. They're happy to be postmen. They're happy to be on a minimum wage doing whatever. They're happy to be just, just normal, like nine or fivers. He, it really frustrates me. And he, he, you can hear it on the phone. It's like, why are they, Hugh? He says to me, Hugh, why are they doing that? They're so much better. Why are they doing that? Why aren't they putting them, applying themselves? There could be so much more. And the reason I'm asking is, you mentioned earlier about um, uh, a quote from someone, I forget who, but he said, uh, people find more value in being, will find more value in being part of a small organization, closer to the, to the tip of the spear, as in close closer to the boss, small organization, more connected to everyone in it than part of a bigger organization. And I don't, I don't find that. Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell. Right. Okay. So, and the reason I'm tying John into this, because the way I've like rationalized it with John is like, not everyone's, I mean, John is exceptionally driven. John uh, and John also can't fucking sit still, man. Right. So like you, um, but the fact of the matter is not everyone's like that. And, I, like I said to him, I said to people in the past, I would give anything to be that person, okay, who can sit there and be quite happy to go and earn as much as they need to earn, doing a nine-to-five job and be in the same place every day, doing the same job, 
You know, maybe there's some career aspirations, maybe not. They're just happy with what they're doing. And they come home and they have the routine in the evening and they go to the gym or they go for a run or they sit down and they watch their program, SAS who fucking dares wins or Coronation Street, whatever it may be. They get up in the morning, they have their brew, they read the paper, they go to work. I would be, I would give anything to be that person to, for that to satisfy me. I envy those people. I really do. I envy those people because that has huge value to me. The fact of the matter is, I'm not like that. And John is like that. And you are not like that doesn't mean we're any better or they're any better but yeah. everyone's not the same thing and, sure. and and it's not a drama like your aspirations can literally be i want to chill out because i did all my job when i was serving and i know people like that i know someone who who um i knew him vaguely when he was in he was much more senior to me he was a he was he was reg but he was also a very accomplished interrogator and and he, and he left me after his full time and he became a fucking postman. This guy was frightening when he was in. He was frightening. He, he was, I mean, I wouldn't want to have engagement in any conversation. I had no right to because I was a Tom at the time and he was like a sergeant major. Got out, became a postman. And I can absolutely see why. Just chilling out, right? I've always thought it's like a, a front, it's like a front for MI5 or something. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. But, but going back, you mentioned about like big, big organization, a small organization. I think the value in which you find it is is dependent on the organization. Like I work for Inmarsat. My day job's Inmarsat. Man, I'm not just saying it because they're my employer. I love it. And there's reasons I love it. It's not because it's Inmarsat, right? It's because in my role, it is fucking challenging. It is hard work. Every day I'm learning new, I have to force to learn new stuff. I'm finding things difficult. I'm getting like, put to task. And, my, and it's intense, all right? And, and, the, and the pressure that's put on me is quite significant. Mm. And if I don't have that, because there's been periods, I worked for Inmarsat for long, there's been periods where I've worked for Inmarsat, I didn't have, like the first few months when I was there, where it sort of eased myself in, I didn't have that. Mm. I didn't, the satisfaction I got from being there was zero. Because for me, I need to be challenged. I need to be challenged. I need to be learning. I need to feel like I'm a valuable member of the organization, whatever that is. The other thing with, with Inmarsat, introduce me to Team Rubicon UK. And also, they do a lot of humanitarian stuff. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel like we're doing good stuff, you know. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's, it's very, I think, the value you get in what you do is, is, is very personal. At the same time, I love the entrepreneurial side of things. You know, the podcast and what's fallen out of the podcast and sideline things. There's a lot of entrepreneurialism in there yeah. where I can, I can steer my own ship. I can, and it's, I do wrong. It's small. I'm not going to be some millionaire, you know, and bin off in my sat. In my sat's my career. The podcast is a separate thing, but I'm also my own boss. And I like that side of it. Everyone's mm. a little bit different. And again, it goes back to it, it's got, it takes time for you to leave and find what works for you. And you may think you're going to get out and go on, or go on the circuit. It's going to be the best thing since life bread. You're going to go out and go and go. I want to be like Adnan and be and, and get into TV and, and media. And just to heart, like just to heart the point, you were lucky to get that master's degree. But you don't yeah. absolutely for for people listening, you don't or watching, you don't absolutely have to have that to be where you are now. Just the way yeah. it went for you. Anything is possible, but it's going to take a soak period when you leave. Where are you going to go? What am I doing? You just need to acknowledge, I think, it's just lessons that people are getting now, is you need to acknowledge that is normal. There's going to be a soft period. It's, uh, it's unfamiliarity, unsuredness, maybe a bit of insecurity, but it, it's vitally important that happens and hopefully short for you and not long because that, that forms the foundation on which 
your second career, regardless of how long you spent in the military in the first place, your second career is the foundation of which the first few weeks, months, or even years at the start where you're learning the ropes in Civvy Street and what skills and experience you have now that are applicable that you didn't have when you were in Civvy Street before the military are applicable now. Uh, man, well, I'm fucking but, ranting but, on. Well, well, you know, that, that model of the military, you know, you can join at 18 at 22 years, at 40, you leave with a full pension or uh, forget the full pension for now. But that's actually an economic theory that people are looking at right now because people are living longer. So people are saying around the age of 40, what should happen really, because you're actually fit enough. Do you remember when we were younger, people were telling us we had to retire when we were 60? That horrifies me now as a 41 years old. So the theory goes, you get to 40 unless you're like a surgeon or something or you're, you're senior or whatever, or you're managing, managing other people, you then go back to university and you retrain and you do your second career and then you retire. So you could have two separate careers. And if you look at it like that, like, yeah, why not? Because when you leave the military, you can, like, you don't need to leave, you don't need to uh, jettison everything and say, oh, forget the military. But, you know, you learn stuff. And I, you know, I certainly developed from it and I've gone on and used the confidence and all the kind of, you know, things from the military to do other stuff. But there's another there's another chapter to your life and it's not retirement and it's not chilling out. So at the age of 40, you know, maybe that's the way you should look at it. Because, I look, like I definitely think the military is brilliant and all that kind of stuff, but I don't think resettlement was great. I don't think um, everybody doing CP was a great idea, you know? And, like, I don't think anybody wanted... Um, I don't think anybody wanted a CP operator who was an ex-Royal Engineer and who can't speak Arabic. So I don't think, I don't think anybody was going to hire me anyway, mate. But my point is, you can you can retrain yourself and do something else. And it's, it's, it's being thought at, at some quite big levels. People are saying, we are living longer now, mate, and we are healthier now in the West. You know, maybe we should have our, you know, the second creation be a reality because it, it would boost the economy hugely. Mate, it's a, it's another good point just to highlight the, the difference in people, I, right? So that that uh, that retirement thing, man, I cannot see myself ever retiring yeah. because the way because the, I, never because the way I, what the fuck am I going to do with myself? Because the way this is the way I look at it. It's like I've got knowledge, I've got experience, I've got a ton more than sixty or sixty-five or whatever the retirement age is. I don't even know what it is. I don't care, right? My perspective might change, but I would the worst thing in the world for me would be as a human being on Earth who's got knowledge and experience, I, there's always someone you can benefit. There's always, right? Now, for me, it's, okay, I want to. I just want to keep being a benefit. That's me thinking now. I might change my mind in 15 years' time. <laughs> me yeah. thinking now horrifies me. Now, I know some, a, a mate of mine, Mike Valance. I love Mike to bits. I love him to bits, right? But I look at Mike. Mike's had a, a, he's a mega successful businessman, right? He's a managing director for a, a, a global bank. He does a shed load of charity work, mate. He's an app. He's one of the, most amazing people I know, okay? It's a pleasure to know him. Mike will never retire. I'm telling you, he may retire from the banking world. He will never stop grafting. He will never stop working because I think he's the same he's the same mindset as me, right? And then I've got another mate called Jared. Jared did the first 10 shows. I mean, we were snipers together in the three power, right? Jared, I love it the bits. He is equally as valuable to society as anyone else is, right? Mm. He's a fucking dude. Do you know what, Jared? I guarantee it. Jared gets the first... Oh, the first chance of being able to retire and chill out and do what Jared wants to do, right? Which is walk his dogs, go out walking, tent his garden, right? Maybe read a book, smoke a cigar in his shed, right? That's that's what Jared will do. Yeah. I mean, 
that that's not. I mean, I'm not drawing a pattern. The only cries I'm drawing is two different aspirations, two different values and wants in life. Okay, they're both equally as valuable people to me, but they're completely different in what 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 drives them or what satisfies them. And that's the same across the whole of the fucking the, the, the world population, right? It's it's mate. Right, we live in a crazy world. We've got to finish it off. Where um right, shameless plug. Where where do you want people where do you want people to go to find you and find your latest stuff? Well, you, you know, if you if you well, if, okay, so if you Google my name, just you you can follow me on social media. But the the problem is, if you Google my name, there's another Adnan Sawar, right? And he is a Pakistani actor in Pakistan. He I get loads of his fan mail. I get Pakistanis writing to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Saying to me, put me in your next film. I'm like, dude, it's not me. They're like, yeah, well, I know it's you. So anyway, look, look for it. It'll say former British soldier. Just look for it. You know, look at the YouTube thing. Whatever. I, I don't. Have you got? Have you, have you got a website? No, no. Why? Why not? Look, like you know, if if people want to read British Muslim soldier, that's probably a good point. Or just follow me on YouTube. That that would be really helpful. It, the YouTube series is the thing that I really want to build out, and and because I really want to have an honest conversation. With, with with people who are saying, I think the army is this, and I really want to have an honest conversation with the army, you think, I think those people are like this, because I think there's something in the centre that we're not doing. And that, that's why I'd, I'd, love, I'd love for my honesty and my, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I screwed up here, I screwed up there, whatever, and, and admit, admissions of my failure, but also saying, well, now I'm here um, to help people. So the YouTube is, is, is the thing, if that's, yeah. British Muslim soldier on YouTube. We're not... Uh, yeah, you'll find it. You'll find it. you'll just just well, my name. I'll, yeah. I'll I'll put the link in the blurb of this podcast. Now. Cool, cool. Thanks, man. Adnan, mate, we're gonna do this again in the yeah, studio, yeah. though. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah. No worries. Like in in a couple of weeks, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Who knows? Ah, Who knows? We'll Keep going, buddy. Been an absolute pleasure, bud. Have a good one. That's it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do one or two things for me. Do one or three things, really. You can support me via Patreon, so you can sign up to be one of my supporters of the podcast I produce. I actually produce another podcast in addition to HR. If you didn't know, you can find out more about that at patreon.com. So patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. That podcast release is impending. Uh, the whole series has been recorded in full before being released in full and it's going to go to my patreon supporters first so there are a small amount of people in the know about this podcast get yourself to patreon find out more about it there patreon.com forward slash hk podcasts um that's the first thing you can do you can also if you're an apple user an iphone user an ipad user apple Podcasts, then you can leave a review for the podcast please i would really appreciate it just go to apple Podcasts, itunes and click leave a review and guess what write stuff in i would really appreciate it. and then the third thing you can do i've forgotten what was this? oh now <laughs> i just remembered the podcast is also on youtube and the youtube version doesn't have the intros and outros but you can watch it you can watch me interviewing the guests and you can see the the the, uh, the, the guests tell their canny tales adnan is uh, definitely one for uh, a visual canny tale teller so um just search for hr podcast on youtube another thank you to my sponsors 
West Wind Sunday at Hoodie UK. Another thank you to them for not only for supporting the podcast, but for supporting the UK in this uh, COVID 19 situation through all that they're doing for key workers through Westway. Thank you. So, westwindisan.co.uk for, yeah, for their stuff. When you're looking for a vehicle, go there. If you're ex military or serving military, you can get up to 20% off. And they've also got shedless deals on all the time anyway. Westwindisan.co.uk or West when it's on the social media. Also, a big thank you to Rugby for Heroes, an organisation uh, formed in the wake of pri- the death of Private Joe Whitaker back in 2009. They organised fundraising events for military charities, and a bunch of my friends, old colleagues, and myself included, have benefited through the work in the past that Rugby for Heroes has done. I'm hugely grateful for them for that, and also for supporting this podcast. Get on to Rugby for Heroes on social media to keep up to date with when the dates of the new events will be announced. And I shall hopefully see you at their impending, upcoming, I've said impending twice now, I think, in the last couple of minutes, upcoming uh, Beer and Gin Festival. Date TVC, but keep your eyes peeled. Hopefully not too far away. Rugby, number four, Heroes on social media. Or website is rugbyforheroes.org. That is it. Until next time, keep listening. I'll catch you later. Other... Sincere goodbyes, out.